Welcome, I'm Rose Aguilar, and this is your call. Today's guest, Professor Dorothy Roberts, has spent 25 years studying and contesting racism in the child welfare system. During those years, she's worked with individuals and organizations dedicated to resisting the system's destruction. They have helped her become what she calls a family policing abolitionist. In her new book, Torn Apart, How the Child Welfare System Destroys Black Families and How Abolition Can Build a Safer World, Professor Roberts argues that the child welfare system can better be understood as a family policing system that collaborates with law enforcement and prisons to oppress black communities. She says the system must be seen as part of what she calls the foster industrial complex. And like the prison industrial complex, it's a multi-billion dollar government apparatus. She says the only way to stop the destruction is to abolish the system and reimagine child welfare. Professor Dorothy Roberts is an acclaimed scholar of race, gender, and law. She's professor of law and sociology and professor of civil rights at the University of Pennsylvania. Professor Roberts is founding director of the Penn Program on Race, Science, and Society in the Center for Africana Studies. Past books include Killing the Black Body, Race, Reproduction, and the Meaning of Liberty, Shattered Bonds, The Color of Child Welfare, and Fatal Invention, How Science, Politics, and Big Business Recreate Race in the 21st Century. Professor Roberts' new book is Torn Apart, How the Child Welfare System Destroys Black Families and How Abolition Can Build a Safer World. If you are in the Bay Area, Professor Roberts will be speaking on Thursday, March 23rd at 4.30 p.m., at the Bayview Opera House in San Francisco, and you can find information at yourcallradio.org. Hi, Professor Roberts. Thank you so much for writing this book, really, and all of your work, and thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me to be on your program. I really appreciate it. Well, it's great to have you. And I have to say, Professor Roberts, and I'm sure you've heard this many times before, the stories you share are so disturbing. And we'll go into those, but given your long body of work, I just want to ask you when this journey began, you write about how in the 1990s, you were researching the arrests of a number of black mothers across the country for being pregnant and using crack cocaine. In your book, you write racist myths about them giving birth to so-called crack babies described as Uh, irreparably damaged, bereft of social consciousness, and destined to delinquency had turned a public health issue into a crime. So can you talk about the work that you did back then? Sure. Well, this was my very first research project when I became a professor back in 1988. And actually part of my motivation for going into legal scholarship and teaching was these Uh, prosecutions that I was reading about in the paper. Uh, They were punishing mothers for using drugs while pregnant and in very brutal ways. Uh, Mothers were being dragged from the maternity ward, still bleeding. Uh, There were women who were pregnant in last stages of pregnancy and locked up in jails around the nation. And as you just quoted, 
it was an example of taking what was a public health issue, the issue of drug use and pregnancy, and turning it into a criminal offense, which had never been done before. And it was entirely based on these myths, these falsehoods about the so-called crack baby that was supposed to be like no other baby exposed to drugs, and their mothers who were portrayed as being chemically deprived of maternal instinct. And to me, I thought right away in reading these stories that this was because of racism, a longstanding racism against Black mothers, that this was allowed to happen, uh, that the that being pregnant and using drugs would be seen as a crime, and also uh, that it was uh, an invasion of their reproductive freedom, and it was a very harmful uh, health policy as well. And so I began to look into the prosecutions and develop an argument that they were unconstitutional, and also an argument that the mainstream reproductive rights approach to reproductive freedom was too limited because it didn't take into account punishing people for being pregnant. Uh, There was the focus on abortion, but not seeing its connection to the criminalization of pregnancy. Now, in doing that research, I discovered that the biggest punishment of Black mothers who were uh, who had used drugs was to take their babies away from them. Uh, I had been focusing on the prosecutions, but many, many more black mothers were being punished by losing custody of their newborns, you know, brand new babies taken away from their mothers. And at the time, there was even the term border baby, because so many of them were just being boarded at hospitals. And then pathologically, you know, the the media and and some uh, researchers would see the harms to these babies of being taken from their mothers at birth and then blame the mothers attributed to their drug use when, in fact, These were the results of both structural inequities in their neighborhoods, not connected to the drug use, but also the result of this brutal treatment of mothers and their children. And and that's how I found out about the child welfare system, because it was the child welfare system that was taking these babies away from their mothers. And and can you talk about how these myths have stayed with the society ever since? Oh, well, first, I think we should recognize that these myths have always been in U.S. society and dominant culture from the time of slavery. Uh, This is something, by the way, I write about in my chapter called Race in the 1619 Project book and was also the subject of of this episode two in the Hulu uh, 1619 Project docuseries. Uh, These myths about neglectful, uncaring Black mothers began during the slavery era when Black children were owned as chattel property by white enslavers, and white enslavers could rape Black women with total impunity. There was 
no such concept of rape for Black women. And Black women and their children were enslavable and rapeable. And that produced stereotypes to justify this of Black women being sexually licentious and being uncaring toward their children. Uh, And that idea that is reflected in the myth of the Black Jezebel and even in the Black Mammy, because the Black Mammy was supposed to care for white children, but not care for her own children. Uh, And that is part of what underlies policies that have punished Black women for being pregnant and try to deter their their pregnancies, their fertility after uh, emancipation. And so uh, we see these very uh, vivid images of deficient, uncaring, even dangerous Black mothers who pass down a depraved lifestyle to their children. And so uh, in the 1980s, we see the myth of the Black welfare queen, the idea that Black women had babies just to get a welfare check and then spent the money on themselves and didn't care for their children. That was a a myth that began during the Reagan administration, but continued into the Clinton administration and fueled the welfare restructuring that ended the federal entitlement to welfare. Uh, That was passed in 1996. Uh, And then also simultaneously in the late 1980s, we get this image of Black women who traded sex for crack, crack then depriving them of maternal instinct, and then they they gave birth to so-called crack babies. You know, again, these are all deeply racialized images. They're the, the welfare queen, the pregnant crack addict, the crack baby, they are all portrayed as black. You know, no, no, no other race. They, this is seen as some kind of innate feature of blackness to produce these uncaring mothers and uh, children who are irreparably damaged. Uh, And that idea of the uncaring Black mother, the lack of true loving bonds between Black parents and their children, the idea that Black families are dysfunctional, that Black families don't really have loving bonds with each other. I think those stereotypes are what support a system that destroys Black families so easily. And this is well-documented in studies that it takes less risk for for a a caseworker to remove a Black child than a white child, that the same image of a messy room is seen as neglectful if a Black child is pictured in the image than if a white child is pictured in the image. You know, doctors who are more likely to suspect child abuse when a a parent brings in a child with a broken bone if the child is Black than if the child is white. And also going back to drug use uh, while pregnant, lots and lots of studies that show that doctors and other hospital workers are more likely to test for, suspect, report Black pregnant people uh, of drug use than white people. 
white patients. So there's there's so much evidence of racial bias in these decisions, and they are all fueled and promoted by these negative stereotypes that we could trace back to the slavery era and have continued consistently in dominant U.S. culture since then. I think this is so important, Professor Roberts, especially given the Republican attack on this history. And I, I'm just so happy to learn that you are involved in the 1619 Project. It's it's something that's been on my list for a long time. So I'm definitely going to read that book now and then watch the Hulu series. In your new book, Torn Apart, you write that in 1662, the Virginia House, the first elected legislature in the colonies, passed a law providing that children born to black women had the status of their mothers and therefore could be enslaved even if the fathers were white. This rule, soon adopted by other colonies, allowed white men to profit from their sexual assaults on black women and cast black women as the reproducers of their children's subjugated status. You write, in fact, the law granted to enslavers a future interest in black women's potential offspring. Enslaved parents had no legal claim to their children. What are your thoughts, Professor Roberts, about where we are right now that so many Republicans in this country do not want people to learn this history? It's abominable and it is extremely damaging because we cannot understand policies today if we don't understand their deep origins in white supremacy, in slavery, in settler colonialism. As I just went through, we can see a direct trajectory from slavery to policies we have today. And those policies are much better understood. They can only be understood if we understand their foundation. Uh, We can't understand what needs to be changed if we don't understand the foundational logic behind these policies and the kinds of myths and stereotypes and false ways of thinking and oppressive ways of thinking that support them. They may seem logical according to a narrative that that completely ignores their actual foundations. And so and and also it doesn't it doesn't make sense to people, to many people, why there would be such an oppressive policy uh, if they don't understand the long history of white supremacy and racism. In other words, it's it's easy to conclude that Black families are dysfunctional Mm -hmm. if you don't understand that the reason why there's so many Black children in the foster system is because of these racist policies that were politically structured in a way to oppress these families and that have been doing so for centuries. And so, and this is why I think the right wing wants to exclude this history because they don't want a mass movement for social change. Uh, and so it's it, by, by, by suppressing the reality of the historical roots of policies we have today, it's easier to 
convince people that those policies today are just and equitable when by understanding the history and the trajectory of the oppressive policies and and structures and systems, you, I think if you're really open-minded and you really are uh, care about justice and equality, you'd have to conclude they need to be abolished. So, uh, Yes, this is, I think it's very clear why uh, conservatives, right wings, people, people who want to maintain the status quo would want to erase the reality of history from the education system. Uh, and it, it's just so important to understand that history in order to get any kind of grasp on how we got to the injustices we see in America today. Today, we are speaking with Professor Dorothy Roberts, an acclaimed scholar of race, gender, and law. Professor Roberts is out with a new book, Torn Apart, How the Child Welfare System Destroys Black Families and How Abolition Can Build a Safer World. She's professor of law and sociology and professor of civil rights at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have any questions or comments for Professor Roberts, uh, we'd love to hear from you. If you have any connections to the child welfare system, we'd love to hear from you. She says the only way to stop this destruction is to abolish the system and reimagine child welfare. The toll-free number is 866-798-8255. You can also email your call at KALW.org. If you're in the Bay Area, Professor Roberts will be speaking Thursday, March 23rd at 430 at the Bayview Opera House in San Francisco. Professor Roberts, let's talk about Vanessa Peoples. You begin your introduction with a story about Vanessa Peoples. And it's just shocking to think that all of this happened because she was enjoying a picnic in a park. In the summer of 2017, 25-year-old Vanessa and her sons were having a picnic in a park in Aurora, Colorado. She was undergoing treatment for leukemia and asked one of her cousins to keep an eye on one of her sons as she played with the other son, but the cousin decided to leave without telling her. So a woman called the son that the cousin left and called the police to report her for child neglect, and she got a ticket. Can you tell us what happened about a month later on the morning of July 13th, 2017? Sure. So as you just described, Vanessa Peoples ends up getting a ticket. It was actually for child abuse, because I've learned since writing the book that Colorado has a misdemeanor child abuse charge that doesn't even require harming a child. And so all that happened in this case was that her toddler strayed away from her for a minute. If she could see him and a passerby calls the police, the police give her a ticket for child abuse. Now, a month later, because she's now under the on the radar of the uh, Colorado Child Protective Services, a caseworker and an intern show up at her door and knock on the door because they now have this report of child abuse. They've come to investigate her home. And she doesn't hear the knock on the door because she's just given the two little boys a bath and she's downstairs where she lives in her mother's house in the basement cleaning up. And uh, the caseworker 
uh, calls the police for backup because Vanessa hasn't come to the door. Uh, Three police officers arrive. They enter her home. As she's coming up the steps, a police officer has a gun pointed at her head. And when she asks for them to leave the house, they refuse to leave. We now have three police officers and two agents from Child Protective Services refusing to leave her home, interrogating her, inspecting every corner of her home. She calls her mother to come and help. And the mother is trying to watch the two little boys, get them dressed in the bedroom. And a police officer insists that her mother cannot be in the room alone with her own grandchildren. Now, they've done nothing wrong. Nothing wrong. This is just an investigation. Uh, When Vanessa tries to go in the room, a police officer grabs her by the throat, pushes her down, and three police officers hogtie her, what hobbles. Uh, they they uh, are, um, handcuff her arms, they handcuff her legs, and they chain her handcuffed wrists and ankles together, dislocating her shoulder. Uh, she's in this excruciatingly painful position for over 30 minutes before they call uh, the um uh, an ambulance to come get her. Uh, and in the end, she pleads guilty to reckless child endangerment to avoid going to prison. <laughs> all all out of a, a, her child straying away for a minute at a family picnic. Now, it doesn't end there because even though she has a year of probation, a year of being supervised visits, you know, by the child protective authorities, her name is now in the child abuse registry in the state. Vanessa was training to be a nurse. She was in nursing school when all of this happened. She cannot get a job as a nurse because she's a registered child abuser, uh, as well as other jobs. She's had a hard time finding employment now. She also is having a hard time finding a place to rent apart from so her mother's home so they can, she and her little boys, she now has a third little boy, can move out because landlords uh, look up, do a, a background check, and she her name comes up as being registered as a child abuser. So her family has been terrorized. Her children who witnessed her being hogtied by the police and carried out in front of her neighbors, upside down. She says like a pig. Mm-hmm. Uh, this, her children are scared of the police. They're scared that their mother is going to be attacked by law enforcement. And she is economically disadvantaged tremendously by the involvement of Child Protective Services in her life. And I start the book with this story because it shows how terrorizing this system is, how easy it is to be become under its supervision. Fortunately, her children weren't taken from her, but if they found something in her house that they deemed to be at risk of, of the children, they might have taken the children if her mother wasn't there to watch the children. They might have been put in foster care. 
Uh, there are children who stay in foster care for years just because their parents aren't able to meet all the demands of the child welfare agency. Fortunately, Vanessa could live with her mother. What if she couldn't afford the rent because of the incursion on her employment opportunities because of the child abuse label? Uh, her children might have stayed, take, been taken and stayed in foster care. So it also shows the deep entanglement of police officers and child welfare caseworkers uh, calling police as backup to investigate a home or to remove children uh, is common. And caseworkers and police officers in some jurisdictions have joined task forces. They train together. And as uh, Joyce McMillan, the head of JMAC for Families in New York City, has put up on a billboard in New York, some cops are called caseworkers. Uh, they, they work together, and there's a similar punitive logic to their intervention in Black communities. It's not to support. It's to accuse, to investigate, to tear apart, and even sometimes permanently sever families. We're going to take a quick break, but I just want to share one statistic from Professor Roberts' new book, Torn Apart. Every year, government agents invade the homes of hundreds of thousands of families in poor and low-income communities without a warrant or any other kind of judicial authorization in the name of protecting the children who live there. In 2018 alone, 3.5 million children were involved in an investigation by Child Protective Services. Black families are disproportionately subjected to state intrusion. Professor Dorothy Roberts is author of the new book, Torn Apart, How the Child Welfare System Destroys Black Families and How Abolition Can Build a Safer World. This is your call. We'll be back. This is Your Call. I'm Rose Aguilar. Coming up on our media roundtable tomorrow, we will talk about media coverage of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Then we'll talk about the federal judge in Texas who's about to rule on a case that could halt distribution of a key abortion pill. If you have a show idea or a guest idea, you can email yourcall at kalw.org. And if you'd like to join today's conversation with Professor Dorothy Roberts, who's out with a new book, Torn Apart, How the Child Welfare System Destroys Black families and how abolition can build a safer world. You can give us a call at 866-798-8255. You can also email your call at KALW.org. Professor Roberts, we have an email from Vicki who writes, in 2012, I had occasion to call child welfare to report abuse by my white son of his five-year-old daughter. They did approach him briefly, but did not follow up and suspected, harassed, and threatened his separated Thai wife, even though I had told them she was not the abuser or the problem. A racist system hurts everyone. Yes, let's do away with it. Unless people have direct experience with the system, like Vicky did on that particular day, they probably don't know how the system operates. Um, after all, it's called Child Protective Services. So... Can you talk more about this? Because you say that the system is, is basically founded on this idea that the way to solve children's unmet needs is to take them from their families. 
Exactly. That is the fundamental principle that explains how the child welfare operates and why it operates in such a traumatic way. Instead of supporting families, instead of changing our society to be one where we don't have these high rates of childhood poverty. You know, we just in the news today is about how uh, the food assistance program that was giving uh, food benefits to families is going to end, at least the increase in it is going to end. So there will be more children in America who are unable to uh, have the food that they need. Uh, the 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 philosophy behind it is that the reason for children's unmet needs, and by the way, the vast majority of children who are taken from their families are taken on grounds of, of neglect, which is basically poverty. It's failure to meet material mm-hmm. needs of children. And uh, instead of seeing this as the fault of inequities in our society, the system treats it as a form of parental deficit or parental pathology. And then the solution, according to this way of thinking, is to threaten to take children away or to remove them from the home and issue a set of mandates to parents. If they don't meet them, then to permanently sever the family relationship. Instead of imagining how we could actually support families and keep children safe in non-coercive, non-threatening, non-punitive ways. And and the way, so that's the underlying philosophy uh, of this system. But it, it plays out by not dealing with the needs of families. It's not as if you approach the system and say, I I need help, I need support, and the system in a voluntary, kind and caring way gives you support. No, it's based on accusations by anonymous callers, by mandated reporters, which are police, teachers, doctors, uh, social workers, uh, to the system, investigating by searching people's homes, interrogating children, even strip searching children, looking for evidence, collecting massive amounts of confidential information, and then threatening to take children away or taking them away. And in more cases in the U.S. than anywhere in the world, terminating parental rights for failure to completely comply with the system's dictates. That's how it operates. That is not a supportive, helpful system. That is a system that is accusatory, investigative, punishing. And that's how this system operates. Uh, If I could just say something, I would like to respond if we have time to um, the caller and also what you said. So I want to point out in the quote you read uh, uh, where I, I wrote that these investigations happen without judicial approval. I want to emphasize that routinely caseworkers who are sent out to make investigations like the one done uh, on Vanessa People's Home, but also the three million investigations that go on every year. Uh, And by the way, half of Black children in America Oh, 53%, more than half of Black children in America will be subjected 
to a child welfare investigation before they reach age 18. So these are massive numbers of investigations. Most of them end up unsubstantiated. So these families are harassed, terrorized, uh, their their privacy invaded without any, any outcome, whether they needed help or not. And then uh, the, this is routinely done, mostly done without any judicial authorization, despite the fact that the Fourth Amendment applies to any government agent who is demanding access to your house to search it. Uh, it's as if there is an exemption to the Constitution for these caseworkers, and there shouldn't be. Parents should know their rights. They should have access to lawyers. They should know, they should be told their uh, equivalent of Miranda rights. And caseworkers should have to prove probable cause, just like police officers do, and get a warrant in order to search a home. But that rarely, rarely happens. Although the Pennsylvania Supreme Court ruled that it should happen um, uh, a couple years ago. Uh, I also, in response to the caller, want to point out a couple things. One is that she pointed out the white husband uh, or father was uh, basically given a pass and they targeted the uh, Thai wife, a, a woman of color, a mother of color, for their uh, interrogations and and uh, and and intervention. Uh, and I would point out two things. Number one, that uh, this is an example of how mothers of color, especially black and indigenous mothers, especially are targeted by this system for accusation, for uh, policing, and for punishment. But also it points out the way in which when there is violence in families, this system deters mothers from seeking help because they're afraid that they will be punished. Their children will be taken from them, even when they are survivors of abuse in the family. Uh, There are studies that show, and this happens in jurisdictions around the country, that when mothers are survivors of violence in the home, they are the ones who are experiencing abuse. The system blames them and threatens or takes their children away from them. And this is a deterrent to getting help. Uh, That is an important aspect of the system that the people, professionals and other and, 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 and venues and programs that might provide resources for families, schools, clinics, social service programs are turned into agents of reporting suspected, and I I emphasize suspected, child abuse and neglect. And that makes people who do need support afraid to reveal their needs for fear of their children being taken from them. Well, well, thank you for that email, Vicki. We have another caller who would like to share an experience. Let's go to Linda in San Francisco. Hi, Linda. Hi. Um, I worked in the War on Poverty and with the National Welfare Rights Organization. You know, and the professor couldn't be more correct. 
of course, this didn't begin with Reagan. You know, it was back in the Nixon and um, Johnson administration that the local welfare department, which under AFDC, they were required to give an income and also housing, interestingly enough, which is no longer the case. But there were a lot of separate grants, like a woman would get money that was supposed to cover food and utilities and so on. But there were grants for emergencies and for school clothes and for you know, refrigerators and such, and the welfare workers would just generally deny them. And the worst instance that I recall was my friend who was the head of the national, of the welfare rights local um, had been begging all day for an emergency voucher for food the day before Thanksgiving. She had 15 children at home, who, by the way, were the children of her husband who had finally left her. And they had had no food in the house for all day. They had, you know, They'd eaten through everything except a box of salt. I heard her all day long begging, and they refused to give her an emergency voucher for food, which was her right. It wasn't really discretionary. And then at five, getting to 5 o'clock, she asked me to go home and bring the children, which I did. And so she decided to stay, we being with the National Welfare Rights Group. She now had rights, right? And so the welfare department was willing to pay two deputies or guards or whatever they were to remain with us. For a four-day weekend, we didn't wind up staying the whole four-day weekend because somebody sent in food eventually. But, you know, they would not give her an emergency food voucher for 15 children who hadn't eaten, including a small infant. Um, but they would pay guards for two of them, overtime and holiday to pay for numerous shifts for, you know, all the way through. You know, I mean, nothing except, what would you say, blaming the victim which is, you know, a very famous book from that period, Paul Ryan, which I would recommend to anybody, you know. And the children, the, the mother put the children down lying on chairs, laid out chairs, and they never complained, never a moan or anything. And as she, she was so proud of her children. She said they're really strong, you know, because she had brought them up to be strong. And she used to say, you know, I think I managed very well for a poor person, and it was true. Mm. So I have lots of other stories, but I'll well, leave it at that. Well, thank you so much for that story, Linda. Professor Roberts, your your comments? Oh, well, what, what, number one, it shows how, and this is still true of the system today, it's willing to spend billions of dollars to maintain children outside their families instead of just giving that money to parents in direct income or benefits to help take care of their children. And secondly, that, that I, I appreciate the caller's uh, connection between welfare rights and uh, and the denial of welfare rights and of uh, the foster system. Uh, we can see a direct historical connection in when black people fighting for inclusion in the welfare system that had always supported white families, at, at least since the New Deal, that uh, it then turned into a system of behavior modification taking children away from their families when they had unmet needs with an explosion of the foster care population. And then finally, in 1996, welfare restructuring, ending the federal entitlement to welfare. And then in 1997, the Adoption and Safe Families Act, speeding up termination of parental rights. So we have uh, this backlash against civil rights gains, against welfare rights gains, with the re 
high rates of removal of black children and the restructuring of welfare in America, again, fueled by these long lasting false stereotypes about black mothers and a system today where the states are required by the federal government to protect children from abuse and neglect, but not required to support families. And we have to end this really abominable approach to child welfare of blaming parents for the needs, unmet needs of children caused by structural inequities, Mm -hmm. and instead radically reimagine how we support children, keep them safe, provide for families, support families structurally, as well as through mutual aid, transformative justice, and other approaches, and end this terroristic, punitive, extremely harmful approach of family policing. Well, Professor Roberts, I'm sorry that we're out of time, but we would love to have you back to continue this important discussion. Professor Dorothy Roberts is author of the new book, Torn Apart, How the Child Welfare System Destroys Black Families and How Abolition Can Build a Safer World. Professor Roberts will be speaking Thursday, March 23rd at 430 at the Bayview Opera House in San Francisco. Thank you so much for your work, Professor Roberts, and thank you for joining us. Thank you. I truly appreciate it. Thank you. You can find more information about Professor Robert's work at yourcallradio.org.